Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, today, as we are in the midst of remembering what Jesus did for us, we are going to be remembering Palm Sunday. And specifically, we're going to look at Mark chapter 11. Um, My son, Josh, actually read those verses for us earlier. Um, And also in Zechariah chapter 9 and Zechariah chapter 14. And as we we gather today and as we look at those verses, um, our offering is going to be passed as we begin to reflect on the significance of Palm Sunday. Now, As we think about Palm Sunday, I want us to to have the geography of that event prove instructive for us and some things that God might want us to see and know about the events of Palm Sunday. And so we're going to look at four different movements today from four different locations that will help let us know a little bit more about what Palm Sunday was all about, all right? So the first thing I want us to see is this. As Jesus approached Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, behind him was a life confirming his identity. As Jesus approached Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday, behind him was a life confirming his identity. Now, that is a a significant thing because we don't have, in, in history, we don't have Jesus just showing up on the scene, and the only thing we know about him was that he died on the cross or that he rose from the grave. Behind Jesus was an entire life, sermons that he preached, miracles that he did, the way that he interacted with people. And all of those things were authenticators as to his identity as the Son of God. As a matter of fact, the Apostle John, when he writes his gospel, actually says about Jesus' life, it says that, that John writes his gospel so that we would believe that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. In other words, all of the events of Jesus' life have been preserved for us so that we could understand his true identity as more than just a historical figure, but as someone of great significance, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Now, John argues that point in his gospel writings in in a very uh, focused way. As a matter of fact, when John writes his gospel, he has two sets of seven things that he organizes his gospel around. Seven things were things that Jesus said, and seven things were signs that he did, miraculous things that he did. And through sharing the things that Jesus said and the things that he did, John argues that the identity of Jesus can be confirmed as the Son of God because the the life that lay behind him. Now, some of the things Jesus said, John organizes his gospel around seven I am statements. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Jesus, as he taught people, he he pointed out this reality, I am. And I am was whose name? It was God's name. Jesus was letting everyone know through his teaching ministry that, that he was the Son of God. And the Son of God had some very specific implications for the lives of those who came in contact with him. 
And so we have these seven I am statements that authenticate the identity of Jesus. But not only were these seven I am statements, but also there were seven authenticating miracles, seven signs, John calls them, that authenticated the identity of Jesus. These were things like when he turned the water to wine at the wedding in Cana, the healing of an official son in chapter 4, the healing of a lame man, the feeding of 5,000 when he walked on water, the healing of a blind man, and then the raising of Lazarus from the dead. These seven signs, John says, were authenticating signals as to the identity of Jesus as the Son of God. And so what we see as Jesus approaches Jerusalem on Palm Sunday is what lay behind him was not a thin life, was not a mystery, but was a life that had been lived out in public where what he had said and what he had done authenticated his identity as the Son of God. And specifically, John kind of culminates the signs that he lists with the raising of Lazarus from the dead, where Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And what's interesting is, as Jesus approaches Jerusalem, do you know what lay directly behind him? The city of Bethany. And what happened in the city of Bethany? but the raising of Lazarus from the dead. So again, as Jesus is headed towards the city of Jerusalem, right behind him, just over the Mount of Olives, out in our parking lot was the city of Bethany. It was the city where Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. Not at some point in the distant past, but just a few days before his entry into Jerusalem. Jesus comes with that event, authenticating his identity, in the immediate rear view. The identity of Jesus is identified. And if, unless we miss the significance of this, we need to think about why so many people gathered around Jesus as he entered on Palm Sunday. John in his gospel makes it very clear that the reason why people gathered around Jesus on Palm Sunday was because of what happened with Lazarus. Look at what it says in chapter 12 of John's gospel in verse 9. It says, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. In other words, in this entourage that was moving from Bethany up over the Mount of Olives, down through the Kidron Valley, towards the city of Jerusalem, in that entourage was not just Jesus, but also was Lazarus. And people were coming out because they wanted to see the man who raised Lazarus. And they wanted to see with their own eyes the man who had been raised from the dead. Why was there a crowd? There was a crowd because of the authenticating sign that Jesus had done. Verse 12 goes further. It says, The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they go running out to meet him. Verse 17 Why were they there? The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. Why was there such a commotion? Why was there such a crowd surrounding Jesus as he approached Jerusalem on this time? I mean, the gospel writers let us know that Jesus made at least four trips to Jerusalem inside of his earthly ministry. Why the commotion this fourth time? It's because of what was in his immediate rear view. Right behind him was an authenticating sign so dramatic that people were flocking to see him as he came to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Now, as they came, 
It's interesting to think about what they knew and what they didn't know. The crowds that were gathering around him certainly knew that Jesus was somebody who had done this miraculous sign, but I don't think they grasped all of who Jesus was because verse 16 in John's gospel says that even his disciples didn't understand. They didn't understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. See, friends, what this approach and this authentication lets us know is that God wants us to understand that Jesus is not just some historical figure. God has given us these authenticating miracles and the teaching of Christ behind his presentation in Jerusalem so that we would know that he is unique, he is special, he is the Son of God. He is not someone that we merely show up and attend around. He is not someone that we merely show up, attend, and sing around. The crowds of the first century did that. And yet it's clear they didn't understand all of what God intended them to understand. See, as we gather here today, we need to remember that it's more than just being an attender. It's more than just singing his songs. But there is something about the need for us to embrace by faith what Jesus was going to do on the other side of that wall as he entered the city. Friends, as we gather here on this Palm Sunday, let's not just sing. Let's not just attend. Let's lean in and see the authenticating miracles of Jesus that let us know that he's the son of God, that we place his life and the significance of it in an entirely different category. The hope for our eternity. The first thing that we see is that behind Jesus was a life that was confirming his identity. But what's the second thing that we see? The second thing that we see inside of the geography of this passage is that under Jesus was a symbol of royal peace. Behind him was a life confirming his identity, but under him was a symbol of royal peace. Now, this symbol, of course, was a donkey. In Mark chapter 11 that that Josh read for us earlier, we saw that Jesus sent his disciples to go and to to get a donkey from the town of Bethphage and bring it back to him so that he would climb on it and ride that donkey up over the Mount of Olives, down through the Kidron Valley and into the city of Jerusalem. Now, here's the question. Why is it that Jesus asked for the donkey? Why did he ask for this animal to ride? Did, Did he ask for the animal to ride because he was tired? Well, we need to remember something. Bethphage is a real place. How far was it from Bethphage to Jerusalem? It was about 900 meters, a little more than half a mile, a Sabbath day's journey away. Jesus requested the animal. This is a guy that had walked all over Palestine and not wearing Nike Airs, not wearing Merrill hiking boots, but in sandals. He had gone everywhere. Jesus clearly could have walked over the mountain, down through the valley, and up to the city on his own. Why did he request the donkey? Well, really, the the answer comes in a couple of places. The first is the significance of the donkey. Now, at times, people will look at this Jesus presenting himself on a donkey, and they think only of humility. They think only of somebody of, of meager means. But but the symbolism is much richer than that. Jesus rode a donkey in the same way that kings of ancient times rode donkeys as they entered cities. If a king was riding a donkey as he entered a city, you know what that meant? 
That meant he was coming in peace. If a king entered a city riding a horse, do you know what that meant? That meant he was coming in war. And so as Jesus goes over the top of the Mount of Olives and down into the Kidron Valley and up into the city of Jerusalem, why is he riding a donkey? He's riding a donkey because he wanted them to know that he was coming in peace. He was coming to provide peace. He was not coming in war. Not only was the symbolism there of Jesus coming in peace, but also we see his presentation on the donkey as something that was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. In Zechariah chapter 9, and all the gospel writers quote this verse when they talk about the events of Palm Sunday, these words are written hundreds of years before Jesus' earthly life. Zechariah writes and says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. In other words, when Messiah comes, Israel, Zechariah says, he will come bringing salvation and he will come on a symbol of peace, not to make war, but to bring peace to the people of God. Why did Jesus get on the donkey and ride into the city? Because he wanted them to know that he was the one that Zechariah talked about. And he wanted them to know that he was coming in peace. Now, what's interesting is, as these verses continue, it says this. Verse 10 of chapter 9, Zechariah says, after saying that the Messiah will come, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, he says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations, and his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, friends, Zechariah's prophecy talks about a Messiah, a Savior who would come and who would bring peace. And my question to us today is, did Jesus accomplish that mission? Did Jesus live out Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 and verse 10? Well, in one sense, yes. When Jesus entered the city, What did he do? Ultimately, he went to the cross. And as he died on the cross, he gave his life as a sacrifice for our sins. And in that sacrifice, the book of of Romans, in chapter 5, verse 1, says that this is what Jesus accomplished. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So as Jesus approaches on the donkey, he indeed wins a victory of peace in the relationship between God and man. And all who trust in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins now have the opportunity of peace with God. In that way, Zechariah 9.9 absolutely came true at Jesus' first presentation into the city of Jerusalem. But here's what's interesting. As we continued to read in Zechariah chapter 9, there are other things mentioned in chapter 9, verse 10, that I don't think have happened yet. Because it talks about Jesus, the Messiah, not only entering in peace, but also establishing a rule over all the nations that will go from the river to the, to the sea. 
And as Jesus came and presented himself in Jerusalem, that is something that has not yet happened. And here's what I think we see happening in Zechariah's prophecy. We see the hint in chapter 9 of a second coming of the Savior of the world. His first coming on a donkey secured peace between God and man. But there will be a time future when he will come again. And when he comes with that second coming, he will establish a rule upon the earth that will go from sea to sea. We see the hint of that here in Zechariah chapter 9. To put it another way, it goes something like this. Believe it or not, there's about 2,000 years in counting of history between verse 9 and verse 10 of Zechariah chapter 9. No wonder there was some confusion until Jesus clarified it. The entire church age, the entire time in which you and I are living, is in that moment between the period and the start of the next verse. So because of that, there can be some misunderstanding. But we, as people who read this today, understand that the one who sat on top of this symbol of royal peace, we understand that he will come again. And so we can see the total fruition of the peace that he offers, not just creating peace between God and man, but also creating peace upon the earth. Remember the lion lying down with the lamb? Hasn't happened yet. Remember the nations of the earth being stilled? We still live in a nation of war, a country of war, a world of war. When will those things happen? They'll happen upon the second coming of Christ. As followers of Christ that look at Palm Sunday, let's remember that his first coming will be followed by a second. And so let's not make the mistake of the first century people who, because he didn't establish that kind of military peace in the first century, that that somehow we would reject Jesus as an incomplete fulfillment of prophecy. He came once to secure peace with God. He will come again to establish peace upon the earth. The second thing that we see beneath him was a symbol of peace. But a third thing we need to see is this. Around Jesus was a location of future importance. Around Jesus was this location of future importance. Mark chapter 11 lets us know that as Jesus was approaching, that he was on the Mount of Olives. Remember, when we began this message, we talked about how In front of us was the city of Jerusalem, and behind us was the Mount of Olives. On the other side of that mountain was Bethany and Bethphage. Bethphage. Jesus comes up over the top of the Mount of Olives, and it's there that he is riding down the Mount of Olives towards the city to present himself as the Savior of the world. Now, the Mount of Olives where Jesus was riding down was a place of extreme significance biblically. Of course, it's the place where Jesus presented himself on Palm Sunday. We've seen that in the verses we've looked at today. But it will also be the place where Jesus will ascend to heaven. In in Acts chapter 1, it says that from this location, Jesus ascended to the heaven. After his earthly life and ministry and resurrection, he ascended to heaven from the Mount of Olives. But not only that, but also on the Mount of Olives, that will be the place where Jesus will come back. The second coming of Christ will happen right there on the Mount of Olives. And what's fascinating about this, friends, is this is what Zechariah talks about. 
in Zechariah chapter 14, the first five verses. It talks about the end of the world. It talks about the time when Messiah will come back again. And Zechariah says, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. And half of the city shall go into exile, but the rest of the people shall be cut off shall not be cut off from the city. These are talking about at the end times, there's going to be a great distress among the people of God in Jerusalem. They're going to find themselves in great peril. And at that moment, when that great peril exists, this is a future time that he's talking about. It says, then the Lord, verse 3, will go out and will fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. In other words, the Lord himself will show up and win their victory. On that day, his feet shall stand where? On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal, and you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones so what Zechariah is saying is something very different from what he said in chapter 9, right? In chapter 9, he comes riding on a donkey. He comes in peace, but it's talking about Messiah coming a second time, Zechariah 14. And when he comes, he will set foot on the Mount of Olives, that very same path that he approached on the donkey. And when he comes this time, he's going to come in tremendous power. It says that as he sets foot on the mountain, the mountain will split in absolute two. And the people of God will flee from the city and they will run through the mountain. Can you remember another time where the people of God fled through the middle of something God parted for their safety? It sounds like the parting of the Red Sea, doesn't it? But friends, we're not talking about water moving here. We're talking about a mountain moving. The back wall split in half and God's people run through the middle to safety. Messiah makes a way. Jesus makes a way at his return to protect his people. And as he returns at that point, he he processes forward to win a mighty victory. See, it's a fact of prophecy that Messiah will come from this Mount of Olives again. And this is not just something that that you and I know about because we're looking at it today. This is something that the world knows about, friends. The world knows that Jesus is going to return on the Mount of Olives. You know how we know that? Well, first of all, the Jews know about it. The Jews know that that Jesus is going to return. The Messiah will return on the Mount of Olives. And then when he comes, a resurrection will happen. And that has to do, again, with this eastern wall of the city of Jerusalem. This is a, a picture of looking at Jerusalem from the east. We're on the Mount of Olives here. And if you notice, there's a number of stone enclosures in the bottom of the picture that have little rocks on top. Do you see that? This is a graveyard. Now, something you may not be aware of, but Israeli citizens, as a part of their social security system, have their burial expenses paid for. For free, they can be buried anywhere in the country, except one place, and that is on the western slope of the Mount of Olives, facing the eastern wall of the city of Jerusalem. Why is it, why is it that people who could be buried for free anywhere are paying a premium price to be buried right there. 
It's because the Jewish people know Zechariah's prophecy that one day Messiah will come and set foot on the Mount of Olives and approach the city of Jerusalem from the east. And when he does, the holy ones will rise with him. And so they want to be buried on that slope facing the city so that when Messiah comes and they are raised, their feet are facing the city so that they just pop right up and follow him in. They're aware of this prophecy. And not only the Jewish people, but also the Muslims are aware of this. Do you realize that around the walls around the city of Jerusalem, um, when those walls were rebuilt, they were rebuilt on the, the, the site where they originally were? And the Muslims who rebuilt that wall around the city of Jerusalem, they opened every gate around the city except one. You know which gate they kept closed? The eastern gate. You see it right in the middle of that picture. There's two little arches that are filled in. Why would the Muslims fill in the eastern gate? Because they were aware of Zechariah's prophecy, and they didn't want Messiah to have a shortcut into the city. They wanted him to take the long way around. And if those rocks would not have discouraged the Messiah, you know what else they did? They put a cemetery right in front of that old entrance. Why? Because Jesus was a priest, and no good priest would walk through a cemetery. The Muslims were thinking, we can prevent Messiah from approaching the city by blocking the entrance and by putting a cemetery right there. You know how funny it is, the arrogance of man, right? When Jesus shows up, what will he do? He's going to split the mountain in two. I don't think those rocks are going to slow him down. And Jesus, of all people, has a very unique relationship with cemeteries. That wasn't going to slow him down either. See, the world knows, and not only do the Jews know, and not only do the Muslims know, but friends, followers of Christ know as well. In the book of Revelation, chapter 19, the apostle John gives us a prophecy of the end of the world, and I think he's describing the exact same events as Zechariah, chapter 14 here. It says in verse 11 of chapter 19, John says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. Notice, not a donkey. Donkey, symbols of peace. Horse, a symbol of war. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with an iron rod. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Friends, down that same path, when Jesus comes again, he will come not to bring peace, but he will come to bring war, to judge the earth, to protect his people. How do we have a hope of standing on that day? Knowing this information, how do we have a hope of standing on that day? We have a hope of standing on that day if we embrace what he did at his first coming. If we accept his sacrifice on the cross as the payment for our sins, then we have a hope of being at peace when he comes. Friends, is your God big enough to not only be Jesus on the donkey, but also Jesus on the horse? The scripture presents both. We find our hope in him.
Fourth thing that I want us to see is this. If behind him was a life that authenticated his identity, and beneath him was this symbol of peace, and around him was this place of future importance, guess what? In front of Jesus was a valley full of meaning. It was a valley full of meaning. This was the valley of the Kidron Valley. So again, just remember with me where we are. Back here, the back wall, this is the Mount of Olives. On the other side of that wall, somewhere out there in the parking lot, is the city of Bethany and Bethphage. Jesus gets on the donkey. He rides over the top. He comes down the half-mile approach towards the city of Jerusalem. And as he does so, he's going to pass some very significant things. As Jesus is coming, he he approaches the Kidron Valley, which is this valley that, that separates Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. And as he comes on his right, he would look and he would see the Garden of Gethsemane. This is a a picture of that. And Jesus in his omniscience knew what was going to happen in that garden just a few days later. He was going to bow his head and pray, knowing the pain that was coming. Jesus saw that garden. He, He knew the arrest that was going to take place there. And yet he kept walking in that direction, but he saw the garden. He knew exactly where he was headed. Pastor John reminded us of that last week. And after he passed the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing what he was headed towards, he looked on his left, and you know what he saw on his left? He saw a number of tombs. We've already talked about this. But there was one particular tomb that was being carved out of rock in the first century. Jesus would have seen this under construction. You know whose tomb that was? It was a tomb of the prophet Zechariah. Why is it that Zechariah would be buried on the western slope of the Mount of Olives, facing the eastern wall of the city of Jerusalem, because he's the one who had prophesied that that's where Messiah would come. He looks and he sees that. As Jesus looks, he understands this is the prophetic fulfillment of what Zechariah saw. He sees a reminder of that on his left. And then he keeps going, and he's down now in the Kidron Valley. And the Kidron Valley was an interesting place. Because of its deep descent from the wall of Jerusalem up here, down to the Mount of Olives. Gravity would cause the waste of the city to flow down through there. Specifically, around the time of Passover, there was a lot of animals that were sacrificed as a part of that worship. And the blood of the sacrifices in the temple would wash down into the Kidron Valley. And so at times of festival and sacrifice, there would have been a place that would have had an odor about it. It would have been a place that would have been a reminder of the sacrifice that was happening. And Jesus comes and he walks down across that valley of sacrifice as a reminder that he was going and offering his life as a sacrifice for our sins. Friends, the, the, the offer of Jesus' life on the cross is a, a, a fulfillment, I think, in, in, in some, some ways of what we see in Genesis chapter 15. See, in Genesis chapter 15, we have God making an unconditional covenant with Abraham. Remember, he promised to bless Abraham and his life would be a blessing and to give him land and all this opportunity and descendants and everything. And God wanted to confirm to Abraham that that promise was actually going to come true. And so what he did was he brought Abraham out and he had him grab some animals and cut them in half and lay one half over here and one half over here. And then God had Abraham sit down and God 
pictured here as a fire pot and a flaming torch, passes through the middle of those two animal halves. Now, what was God doing? See, when people in ancient culture would make a covenant, they would cut an animal in half, and then both parties who were making the covenant would walk through the middle of those sacrifices. And this is what they were saying. If I don't live up to my end of the bargain, then may it be done to me as these animals. But when God confirms the covenant with Abraham, he says, Abraham, you sit right there and watch as I alone pass through the middle. This is what God was saying. If I break my covenant, I will cease to exist. But if you break my covenant, guess what? I will pay the price that your sin deserves. Through the valley of two animals, God passes. And through the valley of the Kidron Valley, Jesus walks. A reminder that we are the ones who have fallen. We are the ones who have broken God's covenant. We are the ones who have sinned and fallen short of his glory. But God is the one who walked forward to offer his life as a sacrifice for us. Friends, as we gather here today at Easter, let's not forget what God has done for us. Given what was behind him, this life authenticating his ministry, given what was happening underneath him, this reminder of the peace that he was going to bring between God and man, given what was happening around him and the promise of his second coming, given what was lying in front of him and the symbolism that we just saw, the prophets and everything else pointing to this climactic event of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Friends, given all of that, let's not just attend. Let's not just show up and sing. Let's lay our lives down and embrace through belief that Jesus' death on the cross is sufficient payment for our sins and our only hope for eternity. And we can do that right now. Father, thank you for just the opportunity of worshiping you today. Father, thank you for the truth of your word and thank you for the geography of this land that helps remind us of the truth in three dimensions of what you have accomplished for us in Jesus. Father, thank you that the prophets see not just today, but they see tomorrow as well as you have enabled them through the work of your spirit so that we know that Jesus is coming back. And Father, I pray that we would embrace his sacrifice for our sins, that each of us would trust him in faith so that we would be prepared for his second coming. Father, we long for peace. And we know that that peace comes only through him. We thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name.